worshiping together as we've done for years upon years now on Christmas Eve. Um, I'm excited. Uh, I think we've done a, a great job bringing together uh, children to read Scripture to us, along with adults who will also be reading Scripture in multiple languages to us. Uh, it will be a, a sweet time of fellowship and reminding that our Lord came and dwelt among us. Uh, just a reminder, no Wednesday night activities this week or even next. And uh, remember, again, as, as Pastor Kevin said, uh, breakfast fellowship next Sunday morning at 930. So if you come to Bible study, come hungry because we're going to eat together. And uh, we'll enjoy a time of fellowship. And then, uh, as Pastor Earl said, reminder, our week of prayer and fasting is coming up. And, and let me encourage you again. If you haven't got one of the guides, as, as Pastor Earl was saying, there's guides in the back on, on fasting, a, a simple guide on how to fast that I think you will find helpful. Um, it does talk about fasting from food, but it also talks about fasting in other ways for those who aren't able to fast from food. I, I think it would be um, a time that we really need to unite together as a body in, in prayer and fasting and saying, God, we long to see your work among us. And uh, we desire to see your work in us. And so we come at the beginning of the year to say that's what we want. And uh, we want to use the first week of January to do that. We will actually be praying together on Monday night, January 1st as well. So we'll remind you all this next week. You know, each year during this time of year, we as the body of Christ bring a focused attention to celebrate the fact that the second person of the Trinity the Son of God, became human just like us. We use the Latin word incarnate, that he became flesh and dwelt among us. Or to use the words of Philippians, as Paul wrote, that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Or as the, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Or again, as the angel spoke to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, our Lord summarizes his purpose and coming of being born in the flesh and coming this way in John 3, 16 and 17. His very words to Nicodemus when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And he fills out the purpose of his first coming as he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Our Lord had a purpose in his first coming. It was a distinct purpose, and it was to save those who would believe in him from perishing. To give eternal life, as he would say later in John, to all whom the Father had given him. Or as he goes on and, and says in John 6, to guarantee that all the Father had given him would come to him. 
You see, our Lord came with a very distinct purpose to save. But how could Christ guarantee such a thing? How is it that he would be able to guarantee that all who the Father had given him would be saved and could be saved? How is this possible? More specifically, why did the Son of God have to become human to do this? Could there not have been another way? The answer to that is possibly, but I think you will see biblically what Scripture says is there is a very distinct reason why he became us, human. This morning I, I want to work through the verses of Galatians 4, 4, and 5 backwards. I'm actually going to work through Galatians 5, then 4, verse 5, then Galatians 4, then 4. I can't even get it out of my mouth, it's so backwards. And I really want to begin by answering the question of why. That's what we're going to start with, the why question. Why did the Son of God become human? And then we're going to look at the what, which I think will fill out that why. You know, the Gospels, when they present our Lord, when they present Jesus, they just basically assume his humanity. They don't even really argue for it, per se. They just present him as fully human. I mean, on, as a baby, on the eighth day, he's circumcised. He has flesh, so he can be circumcised as a child under the Mosaic Covenant. His family had to flee to Egypt. Why did they have to flee to Egypt? Because they had to flee from him being killed, as others could have been killed and were killed under Herod. You know, as an adolescent, or excuse me, as a small child, Luke actually speaks and says, that he grew and became strong. I mean, think of this, how vulnerable the creator of the world is to death. And then he has to grow to become strong. And then later in Luke 2.52, that's probably most memorable, as it talks about his adolescent years, it just summarizes it by saying that he grew in wisdom and stature in the favor of God and man. That our Lord grew physically, that he grew emotionally, that he grew like we do. You know, as an adult, when, it, when it's accounted of his fasting for 40 days, such a basic human statement, he hungered. He, like us, needed food. The creator of all the universe, who creates the very things that we eat, and he hungers like us because he's one of us. You know, as as he's older and his, in his ministries, he goes on, there was time when he would have to withdraw because he would grow weary and need rest, just like we grow weary and need rest. And we see that he felt deep emotion as we did, as he cried over the well-known, shortest, shortest verse in the English Bible, Jesus wept. He lamented and cried over the death of his friend Lazarus. And then as his own impending crucifixion stood before him, he agonizes, as we would, at least in part as humans, I think in greater ways because of his great understanding of what was to come. But he agonized seeing his execution lay before him. You know, it's interesting that, 
that to confirm this, the writer of Hebrews, to say, if you want to know how human he was, he was tempted in every respect just as we are. But with one exception, unlike us who give in to such temptations, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, without sin, he never sinned. You know, I could go on and on about how the New Testament presents Jesus as fully human. We even heard, as, as Pastor Earl was talking in reading out Colossians, that the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. You can't wrap your mind around that. You just accept it as true. How, how does the creator of the universe, who stands outside of it, who is not constrained by it, enter himself into it to redeem those that the Father had given him. And this is why I want to pursue this question, why did Christ come as a human? Why? And now if you haven't already, I want us to look at Galatians 4, 4, and 5, and I want to pursue that to come to the answer if you're reading there in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, you'll notice how it reads in verse 5. It says that he came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It starts by telling us that he came to redeem those under the law. You know, that word redeem means to, to secure the deliverance of something. Not just to get deliverance, but to secure it. Uh, to, to deliver it, to liberate is also carried in there. And that's why we get our word, we use the word redeemed. It's not redeemed as in you redeem a coupon. It's not that you cash something in and get a discount, right? It's redeemed in the sense of purchasing something from, from someone else that it belongs to. It's to take ownership of it, to, to take possession of it. You know, the word redemption that you see there, to redeem, is actually used in extra-biblical literature. It's used in Diodorus of Siculus, that is, Diodorus of Sicily, as you would know it today, the island of Sicily, you know, the one that the boot of Italy kicks, if you've ever seen it on a map. Diodorus writes, and he, he describes, and I don't know if you know this, he describes how the, the philosopher Plato was actually sold into slavery. Now, you're going to learn a side lesson here just by me describing the story. Plato was actually in Sicily, specifically in the city of Syracuse of Sicily. Not just Syracuse, New York, it's Syracuse of Sicily. And Plato was actually sold into slavery by the emperor Dionysus I. He was known as the tyrant of Syracuse, the emperor was. Now, here's how you get sold into slavery. If you tell the emperor that the best thing to do is not always what is best for the emperor, that gets you sold into slavery. And Plato was actually sold into slavery, but some of his philosopher friends, it says, went and redeemed him. It actually is translated, it is, they purchased his freedom right? He's sold as a slave. They go back and they buy him out of the slave market and purchase his freedom. They take ownership and possession of him. 
And then they send them back to Greece. They said, go back to Greece. And they gave him an admonition. It's actually written there as Diodorus captured this, says, and by the way, it's wise for philosophers not to associate with tyrants, or if you do, with as much grace as possible, right? But do you hear how Plato is sold into slavery and he's taken, he's bought out of it? There's a ownership change that actually occurs, and that's the same word you hear to redeem. Polybius actually uses it. He's the second century Greek historian. He uses it to talk about how Hannibal, you remember Hannibal in the Alps, and now he crosses the Alps. Well, Hannibal had to cross the Rhone River in France, not the Rhine that you may know of, the Rhone River in France. And to do this, it says that Hannibal had to purchase canoes and cargo boats so he could cross the river. And that's the word. He redeemed the boats. He purchased them from the local people there so he could have enough boats and ships to get across the river with his troops and his supplies. Plutarch, another first century A.D. Greek philosopher, actually uses it to describe the Roman general Crassus. Crassus was a real estate speculator. And here's how he did it. Crassus would go in and he would find the houses burning in Rome. This really was a problem. The houses were so close together, and we know this because you may remember when Nero was emperor back in the, the time of Paul, right? During that time, the houses caught on fire, and they're so close that the fire just starts spreading because they're so closely built together. Well, Crassus, being the, the uh, speculative real estate guy that he was, would come in and say, hey, your house is on fire, I'll buy it from you on the cheap. And then if you're next door, he says, I'll buy your house too because that fire is going to go from that house to that. And it, it literally, Crassus slowly bought up real estate in Rome, so much so that he was known as the richest man in Rome because he owned everything. But that's what it used that word redeemed to talk about buying those houses. He would say he would redeem the houses. He would purchase them, take ownership of, of them. And what I want you to hear is that what redemption meant, it meant to buy something and take possession of it. It, it actually means to take ownership of it. I own this. These are mine. And so what Christ did is he came because he wanted to make redemption possible. Redemption means Christ came to take possession of us. That's the idea. He didn't come to make a mere possibility possible. He literally came to secure that which the Father had given him. He says, I am coming to redeem those, and we're going to see this as we read farther in Galatians, to redeem those who are under the law. Now, he takes us and redeems us so that we can be freed from being under the law. Which raises the question, why is it bad to be under the law? Why do I need to be redeemed, taken ownership from being under the law? The short answer is because being under the law means you are cursed. That's the actual word that Paul uses. Being under the law means you are cursed. If you're looking there in Galatians, just look up in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, For who, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
The problem is, if you're under the law and you can't keep all of them, you are cursed. That's the word that Paul actually uses. We would use a modern term, you are doomed. You have no hope. You can't do it. What's Paul saying? Here's a basic application that you could take away. If you want to earn your righteousness so that God will accept you, so that you will be part of God's family, if you want to do that, then you should follow all the things written in the Mosaic Law. That's what you should do. If you are bound and determined to prove you are righteous enough to be acceptable enough before God, all you have to do is follow all the Mosaic Law. That's all you have to do. Of course, here's the problem. If you break just one of those laws, just one, you are now cursed because it's an all-or-nothing proposition. If you want to prove God should take you on in his family by your own works, then the Bible makes it fairly clear. Just follow all the Mosaic law and he will embrace you. But if you break one, you have broken all. You see, it's this basic idea. One bit of rebellion is by definition rebellion. If you rebel once, you'll do it again. Just give it time. It shows that you are not willing to do all that God asks, only the parts that you find acceptable. And God says, so if you break one, you've broken equivalently all. One bit of sin is still sin. So now you understand, why are you cursed? Why are you doomed? If you are bound and determined to prove your acceptability before God so that he would take you into his family, all you have to do is keep all the law. But as soon as you break one, you're out. That's why Paul says you are cursed if you're going to do it by the works of the law. You see, the, the implication here is that those who want to earn their right standing before God so that he will like them, so that he will accept them, you can't do it. In fact, you can even, as, as Paul would argue in Romans 1, 1 through, chapters 1 through 3, go ahead and create your own standard. Don't take God at his word. You know what? Let's set aside the Mosaic law for a second. Let's just create our own standards. And guess what? You keep those either. I mean, that, that's Paul's basic argument, Roman 1. Go ahead, create your own standards of righteousness, and guess what you still will do? You'll break them. So guess what? You're still cursed. Basically, it's, a, it's, an, it's an argument of example. God says, I've made it clear enough. You, all you have to do is follow all the Mosaic law. So if you can't keep what I've made clear, what I've said to keep, it also argues you can't even keep what you want to make up in your own standard of righteousness. Either way, you will prove you are cursed, that you cannot earn your righteousness. I mean, this, this becomes empirically obvious when Paul explicitly states two things. He summarizes Romans through 3 and 3.23, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Ironically, no matter what standard of righteousness you create or want to adhere to, you will still violate that standard of righteousness. So he says, everyone sins. So that by definition, they all fall short of God's glory. And then he makes it very clear in 623 that the wages of your sin, so you wanted to earn it, as it were, so now you get paid. Your wages of your sin is death. And then he's very clear in the second half, if you want in, it's free. What? The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Unless you don't believe me, and like the rich young ruler who came to Christ, and you're like, I don't know all 613 commands, I'll just give you two. All you have to do is follow these two. They're the, t- the two that summarize all the law and the prophets. All you have to do is love the Lord your God with all, not most, not 98%, not 99.9%. All it is is all. Love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And if you dare be bold enough to think, I can do that, then let's put it where the rubber really meets the road that you'll be able to see. Now, love your neighbor, who is defined also as the one you hate the most, as yourself. Keep those two, and you're good to go. And guess what you're going to find out? You're going to find out Galatians 3.10 is right. You are cursed. I am cursed. If I am going to come after Christ to be accepted by God through my own righteousness of adhering to these, then it says I am cursed. But what Paul says is that Christ came to redeem, to take ownership of those who desire to be righteous with God so that we could redeem from what? A righteousness through following rules. You hear that? Christ came to redeem those who desire to be right with God from a righteousness through following rules. That is freeing, isn't it? Now I'm not trying to keep every jot and tittle. I'm not trying to figure out, am I violating it? I'm not condemning myself when I look and I see by empirical evidence I cannot keep the law. What Christ does is he delivers us from the curse of that law. You don't have to do that. You can have it freely. You see, notice what he says about this. It's not that he just frees us, but but there's even a greater purpose behind it. He says that there in Galatians 4, 5, look again, to redeem those who are under the law and thereby under the curse of the law. Why? Because we can't keep the law, no matter how we define it. But he does this, he takes ownership so that we might receive adoptions as son. You see, we're not just freed from the curse of the rule of following the rules. We are not just free from the curse of trying to follow all the rules for our righteousness. Christ came so that we could actually be adopted. 
Think about that for a second. He comes, when I say take ownership and possession of, he comes so that we will be in his family. That's what he's speaking of. You're not just left to list about unmoored in some way. He literally says, no, I come so that you can what? So that you might receive adoption as sons. Sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. You realize Christ came as a human so that we could be his brothers and sisters, heirs of the Father with all the rights and privileges of family. That's, that's why our Lord came. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians. That he came to be one of us so that we could have this. Not merely forgiveness, but family. To belong in the family of God. But notice how this is possible, right? If that's the why, he comes to take ownership so that we can be adopted, notice the how, right? Look back in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. This is how God brought it about. It's possible, first of all, you'll notice, because God the Father made it possible by sending his Son, right? The Father sent the Son. You see, our salvation from a works-based righteousness, a works-based earning of our standing before God, is possible because God sent the Son. The Father sends His Son to save us. And notice very specifically the three ways He does it. The how behind it. The Father sent the Son when the fullness of time had come, when the son, with, he sent the son to be born of a woman, that is to be born human, and he sent the son to be born under the law. So that, that's, that's how he does it. Fullness of time had come, sent him as a human, and sent him to be under the law. Now, let's take a, a couple of minutes to look at each of these. God, number one, sent his son when the fullness of time had come. Right? Remember, why did he send them? To redeem, to take ownership of those that the Father had given the Son so that we could be part of the family of God. And he says, when the fullness of time had come, what he's building off of is the, is the illustration of what he had just talked about in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. If you're looking there, I'm going to start in verse 29 because it's really important. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You, you, you hear that? Heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. You're an heir, but, but you don't have access to it. I mean, that's what he's describing. This is like a child whose father is rich in the Greco-Roman world, but he's being raised, and he's under what's called a tutor. But his, his guardians and managers are set until, uh, set 
by the Father until a specific date. You see that in verse 2? But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. That is literally those guardians and managers. We actually get our word uh, pedagogy from it. You know how you talk about how you teach and what you teach people? The pedagogue. And the Father says, you're going to learn from this because you got to learn something before you get the full access to my inheritance. He says, in that same way, so just like you're a child who is an heir to promise and has everything to gain from what the Father has, but you can't have it until the time of the Father's appointing, that's what happened in the coming of Christ. In the same way there in verse 3, we, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. It, it's, it's God teaching us, go ahead, try to earn your righteousness. Try to prove to me you're a worthy heir. What you should learn is you can't. You're on a fool's errand. But what God does, it says, when the time had come, he released us from being under the tutor, from the one that was keeping us from the blessings and privileges of the gospel. He actually says that there's a release. He says, try to keep the Mosaic law to prove we are righteous, and it should teach us this. It's impossible. You can't do it. That's what you should learn from the tutor. It's not that the Mosaic law was bad. In, in fact, not only does our Lord say that, he came to fulfill it. But Paul says that. It is confirmed by both our Lord Jesus Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit himself through the inspiration of Scripture. The Mosaic Covenant wasn't bad. It was a tutor to show us of our great need for salvation by faith in Christ. And it says that when that time had come, that's when the Father did what? He sent his son. And then notice when he sends him, secondly, that the father sent the son to be born of a woman. To be human. You see, Jesus could only redeem us by becoming one of us. That's how it works. If humanity wants to redeem itself, we had to find one that could show it was actually possible to live righteously before God. And the Old Testament is a series of men and women that show over and over, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't. The wisest man in all history, Solomon, showed what? Wisdom doesn't do it. The man that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart shows what? A man after God's own heart is an adulterer and a murderer. And you can go on and on and on. There is no one in the Old Testament that can prove themselves worthy to follow all that the Mosaic Covenant asks. It can't be done. But Jesus comes to be born of a woman so that there can also be one who is born under the law. You see, our Lord, when he came, was not merely born 
of a woman to show he's fully human. He was born at the right time specifically to show under the Mosaic law there was one who was fully human that can follow all that the law requires. Because God the Father sent the Son to be born under the law. You see that in the last part of verse 4. You see, Jesus was born under the law to bear the consequences of the curse of the law. Now, here's how the logic works scripturally. And I want to walk us through this to give us the idea of why in the world does the Son of God have to, to use Paul's term, humiliate himself and become one of us? Well, Scripture has this very tight logic of why it works this way. If you're looking again in Galatians 3, look up into verse 10. And let me read you Galatians 3, 10 through 14. And, and hear the logic. If you want to redeem those who are under the, the curse of the law so that they might be adopted as sons and daughters of God, what must happen what we know happened was that at the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son to be born of a woman, that is to be human, so that he was born under the law. Why? Here Paul argued this. Verse 10 of chapter 3 in Galatians, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It should be evident to us that the righteous live by faith, so obviously it's not by works. That's what Paul's arguing, and he argues this in Romans as well. Same verses is referenced over in Romans chapter 1. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, how? By becoming a curse for us. That's what he had to do to redeem us from the curse of the law. He had to become the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Okay, I want you to hear what, what Paul just said. Jesus had to become a curse for us. Now let me work through scripturally how this works. Do you notice the verse that he quotes in verse 13 of Galatians 3? Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Hold a minute, what does that mean? It's pointing back to the book of Deuteronomy. And it's a summary statement of what had to happen for those who broke the law. Very specifically, those who broke the law in such a way it required a death penalty. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, which is what Paul is quoting here, it reads, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Okay, the principle is, if you execute somebody because they have done something punishable by death, 
then you, you take them down because by hanging them up on a tree, you have shown that they have borne the curse of the law. That, that's what Paul is pointing back to. Now, our Lord hung on a tree. That's what the cross was. And he, he hung, by the way, according to man, by that which was punishable by death. Do you know what the death penalty was for? Why our Lord hung on the, on the cross? Because he was bold enough in the presence of all at his own trial to say, I am God. You realize they could not bring Christ to condemnation with two or three witnesses. So Christ had to condemn himself through his own confession. When he said, yes, I am who you say I am. I am the Son of God. And by his own words, he brought about his own condemnation. But where we as men thought we were condemning him for the heresy of claiming to be God, what God was doing was actually saying, no, he will die for those that he was sent to save because they have committed the sin of death. This is how the scriptural argument works. If you're going to punish someone because they've committed a, a sin worthy of death and you hang them, that shows that they've been cursed. Now, take a step back scripturally and ask yourself this. What sin is worthy of death? And the answer is all sin. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, our Lord warned Adam, death comes because of sin. The Lord told him, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Here's part of what we miss. Yes, our first father Adam and our first mother Eve partook of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and brought sin to the human race. But do you notice the sin that they've committed? The sin of trying to be like God. I will understand what good and evil is. Do you remember the beginning when I said, you know what? No matter what standard of righteousness you choose, no matter what standard of good and evil you define, guess what you will eventually do? You will violate that standard. You will commit sin. We do it over and over. Why? We are sinners by nature. And so we think we can understand what righteousness is. Therefore, we can establish good and evil. But when we do, we condemn ourselves. Because we stand condemned by our own sin. The basic logic is this. If you sin, you deserve death. But what Christ did was come and bore the curse of the sin for you. He died in our stead. And the only way, the only way 
to appropriate that saving act is to place faith in him. That's it. That's what Paul is arguing. You cannot follow and show yourself to be righteous. So you are cursed from the beginning. You are doomed to sin. That is what will happen. And so if that's what you're trying to do with your life, I tell you, you are on a fool's errand. The problem is, from, from very young age, we learn that the way we make others happy is by doing what they want. Right? And we begin to, to interpret that as, well, if I can just do what God wants all the time, he will like me and accept me. But what do we find over and over again? I can't do it. I want to do it. I try to do it, but I don't do it. And what Paul is arguing in Galatians is this basic fact. God, when the fullness of time had come, sent his son so that he would be born of woman, he would be one of us, and that he would be under the law, and that he would keep all of it it's called the active obedience of Christ. Nothing missed. And even the passive obedience of Christ. He doesn't not obey God. He obeys him in everything. Our Lord said, I came to do my Father's will. And his perfect obedience is why he can stand as our representative in our place to bear the curse of what we as humans deserve. And that is death. This is why our Lord became one of us. Because if he's not human, he cannot represent us. It is that important that our Lord is fully human. Just as important as he is fully God. Because in doing so, he bears the curse of the law, freeing us to be heirs according to the promise of Abraham, to have all the blessings that God will bestow on us as children of God. I pray that's what we'll remember in this season, that our Lord came to show the gloriousness of his redemption, to take ownership of us through the purchase price of his own death on our behalf. So the summary I would tell you is this. God the Father sent the Son when the fullness of time had come. He sent the Son to be born of a woman, that is to be human, and He sent the Son to be born under the law. And here's how you summarize the big idea. The Son of God became human, Jesus of Nazareth, to redeem us from the curse of the law so that we would be sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus. To put it more succinctly, the Son of God became human so we could become God's children through faith in Jesus. My, my call to you today is to share that hope if you know Christ. Others need to know this. The weight of trying to earn our own righteousness is unbearable it can never be accomplished. But the free gift of God, because of what the Son of God did through the plan of the Father, 
The free gift is salvation. Righteousness through Christ alone. I pray if you don't know Christ today, place your faith in Him alone for your righteousness. Because He has delivered us from the curse of the law. Father, I thank You for sending the Son. I praise the Son for doing the will of the Father. And I thank the Spirit for doing the, the call of the Father and the Son to draw those to Him that the Father's given the Son. Father, I pray if there's any here that don't know Christ, God, may the Spirit work in their lives so that they would, they would hear this and they would know there is no set of rules I can keep to prove that I am worthy to be part of the family of God but oh, the glorious reality that they will just place their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ who was born of a woman who fulfilled all the law and who died in our place. Father, if they would place their faith in him, they would know what it means to be in the family of God. Help us today, Father, to rejoice in this reality. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.